1: Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in Classic Aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers. Jean Batten Drive, Mount Maunganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old airplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place, and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com. Extended.
2: Hi, this is Peter Johnson from aerospace radio station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space programme, outside those who have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. Some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch.
3: And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure.
2: So why not give us a listen? If you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry, come over and give us a visit.
3: Aviation-extended.co.uk
2: And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended.
0: Extended. Extended. <laughs> Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. This episode's a bit different from the usual. It's the soundtrack from the recent virtual forum meet that the Wings Over New Zealand Forum held online. With the isolation enforced on us by COVID 19, I came up with the idea of holding a forum meet virtually which people could connect to through the internet this was a bit of an experiment and it worked really well there's also a video version which you can watch on the show page via YouTube I will add too that this was such a success and I've had so much good feedback since that we're planning another one for the near future so keep an eye on the forum the recording begins with filter week giving a little bit of housekeeping before we get into the actual event
4: Here's Phil. Um, So Dave wanted me just to do a very short rundown on on some etiquette. So uh, what I will do shortly is I will mute everyone so that we don't get any extraneous noises in the background. Uh, Cars revving, dogs barking, wives indicating they're unhappy that you're doing this instead of doing something they'd rather you were doing, that kind of stuff. Um, So if you do wish to speak, uh, Dave's preferred indicator is to raise your hand and when you wish to speak uh if you hold the space bar down it's like a press to talk so you don't have to keep clicking on the mute on and off um the only other thing i'll add you'll notice that uh, we we occasionally get popped into share screen mode um if if you do that accidentally i will just unshare you um uh, i mentioned a little bit earlier so for those of you who have just got one big screen Currently, presumably, with me talking in a row of faces across the top. If you want to see uh, more people, what you do is in the top right-hand corner. Make sure I've got the correct right. uh, There's a a button that says Gallery View, and that just changes to a big grid. Uh, Looks like a a big Brady Bunch set where you you can see everyone. Um, So I think that's about it for me. I'll give it back to Dave.
0: Uh, Cool. Well... um... We're quite uh, privileged to have our first speaker uh, Mike Nichols, who's going to talk a little bit on um, what's happening currently with the John Smith collection. And uh, John Smith uh, was a legend in New Zealand aviation, and um, he uh, uh, he collected all sorts of uh, warbirds from uh, Rukahir Rubbish Dump and from... Uh, Uh, woodburn uh, disposals of um, Air Force, uh, you know, ex ex wartime Air Force uh, aircraft and put it all in a shed. And he had it there for years and years and years um, uh, just preserved. And uh, unfortunately, John passed away last year uh, after an illness and the family um, are now um, working on A plan to do something with some of the aircraft so over to you mike um if phil can unmute you and uh we'll have a bit of an update
5: you need you'll need to
0: unmute mike yeah that's it
3: there we go right oh good afternoon everybody and um, it's a pleasure to be talking to you all about this uh very important uh, subject, or it is to me anyway, the John Smith collection. It's been you know, a significant collection in New Zealand over the years, and it was something that was very dear to the heart of John for many, many years. I, I first met John back in uh, 1978, and visited him many times over the years. We, we talked about a lot of aircraft-related subjects, um, and I always found him to be very friendly and easy to deal with, very knowledgeable, great guy to talk to he just had to be very patient you know there was you know rumors around and people talked about John being difficult to deal with but I never found him like that at all um, you yeah, know he was a very private person of course and he did sometimes get annoyed by people that just fronted up and expected him to drop everything and launch into a big tour of his collection um, which is understandable I suppose but anyway you know it's a it's a shame that he passed away, but his legacy is the collection, and that collection is now owned by the Smith family, uh, most notably his brother George. George is 88 years old, a very sprightly 88-year-old, I would say. Last time we were on the property, George was up on the roof of the hangar trying to fix some leaks and things. Very hard to keep control of them. Um, the other person we deal with is uh, George's son, Robbie, and his daughter, Joe. Again, very nice people, great to deal with, and uh, you know they're doing their best to ensure that the collection is handled in the best way possible. Um, my involvement came about late last year with myself and uh, John Saunders. We're engaged by the family to sort and catalogue the collection, just give them a bit of advice on technical aspects and preservation and help to sort everything out so they could work out what is there because they're really not aviation people, so it can be quite difficult. Um, the collection itself you know, consists of a bunch of aeroplanes that most people know about, and I'll go through those and I'll tell you what I can about them. But i just have to say that I, you know, I don't represent the Smith family, so some things I don't know and I won't speculate on. The other thing is the collection is made up of a, a huge amount of spare parts. I'd say so far we've catalogued, in the region of five to 10,000 piece parts from all manner of aeroplanes. Um, some of the sorts of things we've come across are things like, you know, Walrus floats, um, Canberra parts, Strike Master parts, Skyhawk parts, Huey parts, Mosquito parts, Oxford parts, a lot of Hudson stuff, Harvard stuff. So all manner of things. that's very muddled, I would say. Well, not muddled, but just stored in the shed in no specific order. A lot of it was in, stored in car crates. There are about 20-odd huge car crates that we have been sorting our way through. Um, just to give you an example of one of the crates we opened up, um, one of the boxes had a mosquito fin and rudder, a Merlin crankshaft, a whole pile of mosquito exhaust, B51 undercoach legs, Oxford oil coolers, and a bunch of P51 ducting. And all of that was in one box, so it's a matter of trying to get all that stuff out, work out what it is, identify and catalog it so the family knows what they've got. Um, The desire of the Smith family is for everything to be preserved in New Zealand, if at all possible. Um, And that's a noble cause, I think, and something they're working towards. John and myself and a bunch of other people have been over to the Smith site in Maapur About We've done about 25 trips now, and I'd estimate we'd put in something like 1,500 man-hours, trying to sort everything. We're still not finished yet, and there's still a lot to go. I'll just work through some of the stuff and what's happened to it. So there was some Bristol Hick engines over there that John had collected, obviously, from um, Woodburn. Those Bristol Herc engines have gone to the Bristol Society at Omarka. They've all been moved off-site, apart from one which they've retained at Mapua. Um, A lot of Oxford parts. There was a complete Oxford cockpit section, which unfortunately had been left outside and deteriorated badly. But all the Oxford stuff has gone to a collector in Auckland. Um, That's all been gathered together. So that's all been preserved. Obviously, all the Hudson stuff and R1820 parts are going to Bill Reid, who's got the Hudson that he got from John Smith a few years ago. Um, two Harvards, there's the remains of a Mark II Harvard NZ909, which um, was pretty much cut up. The rear fuselage is complete, um, but that Harvard, along with 1068, have been sold to New Zealand Warbirds, and will be moving north shortly. Um, there's uh, about two and a half container loads of parts and things to go north. The Baffin fuselage, which was there, that's making its way north to Don Sabritsky. He's got the other New Zealand Baffin. Um, it really just consists of a frame and an oil tank, but there's some parts in there that uh, Don said he can make use of. Um, there's a little bit of Devon stuff. Um, and Mit- Mitford Brett, and he's got the flying Devon as... Uh, being engaged, looking at that stuff. Um, In terms of the big airplanes, the P40N Gloria Lines NZ3220, ZO marker at the moment, and myself and uh, John Saunders and a few other people are working on putting that airplane back together and doing some conservation and preservation, a bit of repair work on it, and assembling that, and that'll remain with the Smith collection um, exactly where will be decided in the future. Um, P40E NZ3043, that's been obtained by myself and John Saunders again for a rebuilt airworthy. Um, we'll look at that project once we get through the P40N. Um, the Tiger Moth, I think it's BQB, I think is the registration of that. That's currently stored at Amarker. Um, and that's remaining in Smith Smith Trust ownership. Um, The mosquito, which everybody seems to be interested in, that's at Mapo still. That's remaining in Smith family ownership at the moment. Um, Exactly where it'll end up, uh, I don't know. and I don't want to speculate on that. Um, The mosquito itself is in pretty good condition considering it's a wooden aeroplane. It was outside for quite a few years but it hasn't deteriorated badly at all. It needs some fabric work and a little bit of woodwork, but other than that, it's in great shape. Um, It was cut for the move. uh, When John and his brother moved it from Woodburn to Mapua, the wings were cut and the fuselage was cut, but they've been joined back together really well. Unless you're an expert, you probably wouldn't even be able to find the joins. Uh, The Mustang is still at Mapua and still in Smith family ownership. Um, the Mustang as well had the wings cut off it. They were torched outboard of the undercarriage. The outer wings are there, um, and along with all the other parts to get the airplane complete again. Um, the main other aircraft that are there, it's the remains of four vampires, including a very early F-1 vampire that came to New Zealand as an instructional airframe. The vampire fuselages are all in quite poor condition, unfortunately, because they sat outside for a very long time before John got his hands on them and put them inside. Um, there's a lot of vampire hearts, uh, a couple of goblins, um, and yet to be decided what will happen to all that. Um, I'd just like to remind people that the Smiths property is not really open to visitors, um, at least you talk to somebody in range prior, but it's not a good time to visit um, while things are being sorted and rearranged. Um, I think in time, everything will be available for public viewing. It's just a matter of where and when that happens. Um, So that's probably about where things are at the moment. Um, I would just ask anybody, if anybody's got any photos, particularly of the P40s at either the Smiths Place or at Asplans or here we'd really like to have a look at those. Um, you know, we're trying to get the P40N back into its, the state it was when it was in the yard immediately after our service. So photos are very helpful if you've got anything. We'd really appreciate that. So, Dave, questions? Yeah, has anybody got any
0: questions? If you have, put your hand up and
3: John, you got anything there? Oh, Warwick. Warwick. unmute yourself.
6: <laughs> yeah. Hi, guys. Um, I've got a, uh, the original um, photo album here from the late Dave Jenkinson, who worked at Larson's. Oh, yeah. And I've got a few black and white photos, and then there's quite a few coloured slides. I've got all the originals. Um, I have had them copied, and um, Mike Leet from Hamilton has put them on Dave's website, I think, prior to this but I can have a hunt through there and see if there are any P41s. We can, you know, see what they actually are.
3: Yeah, that would be really appreciated. Maybe you could just send me a PM or something for
6: it. Yeah, thank you. Um, Regarding your Mustang, has that still got the engines in it or
3: not? Yeah, yeah, the Mustang's still got the engine in it and the propellers there, all the scoop and um, radiator and all that is there as well, all the tail, everything's there to make it complete. It's a very nice aeroplane, that.
6: Okay, what about the Mosquito? The engine's still with that?
3: Yeah, yeah, the Mosquito's complete. It's all that's removed from it at the moment of the tail surfaces, the fin and the rudder and the horizontal, but they're all there as well.
6: Very good. Um, you did mention when you were saying about aircraft parts that there was actually Skyhawk stuff there. Do you know what you've got there yet or not?
3: Oh yeah, it's just small components. You know, there's a couple of tyres and I think an undercarriage leg and, bits and small bits and pieces stuff that's come from the scrapyard it would be. Certainly nothing significant, nothing like a fuselage or wings or engine or anything like that.
6: Okay, no, thank you.
0: Cool. Is there any other questions for Mike or
3: for John? You got anything you want to add, John? You need
0: to unmute, John.
7: Well, there we go. Yeah, that's it. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dave. Yeah. Hey, look, I just really wanted to add to uh, what Mike was saying. You know, it's a pretty unique collection that uh, John got over in my earlier and We're just amazed, uh, really, that he managed to do it with so few resources. You know, um, I mean, he, he did a lot of it with a mori Miner and a trailer and uh, very little help, no money, no shed. Um, and when we look at it uh, 50 years later, it's, it's, it's amazing what he collected. And uh, I, guess I just want to emphasize the point that Mike made. You know, um, a lot of people have met John over the years, and everyone that had met him, I think, found him the same. And they found him a very friendly guy. He's a pretty good talker, John. He could uh, talk the leg off several chairs. Um, but a very knowledgeable guy, a very interesting guy. And as long as you had three or four spare hours, it was a great place to go and visit. Um, yeah, you know, you hear stories that he was unfriendly and he chased people off. and He didn't like the air force and all this sort of stuff. But well, as far as I can figure out, that's all a load of rubbish. He, he got on well with uh, most, uh, you know, most aircraft people. And um, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's just amazing to see what he what he achieved uh, over his lifetime. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks very much, guys, and thank you for what you're doing to um, sort out that collection, and hopefully one day we'll see some of the stuff on Public View, which it's never been, really. It's, uh, um, it's really good that the family wants to do something with it and, and sort it out, and,
3: yeah, thanks again. Great. Yeah, my pleasure. I'll, I'll get back to the hangar and do some more work on the aeroplane. Great. Okay, <laughs> thanks a lot, Mike. Catch you okay. later. Cheers, guys, and ladies.
0: Well, that was that was really cool. That's um, good to get an insight of what's happening there. And um, on the the schedule, um, I've just got a little bit of a section here for discussion of any news or um, anything that's going on in aviation at the moment. And I, I just wanted to highlight one thing before we go any further, uh, because of the whole um, coronavirus thing, uh, the annual service at Runnymede Cemetery is um, obviously not open to the public tonight. And this is uh, the cemetery of um, uh, airmen from World War II uh, in the south of England. And uh, they're actually doing a live broadcast. um, And um, the link for that, I'll just bring it up. The link is, it's on um, the Forces TV network. So it's www.forces.net slash Runnymede. So if anybody wants to watch that, it's at 11 a.m. UK time. So uh, that'll be tonight here in New Zealand. Um, I just thought I'd mention that because I saw it come up on on the internet. Um, One other thing I want to mention, which is a really good shout out, uh, if you haven't, if you haven't spotted it yet, and I think probably, the, for me, one of the highlights of this whole lockdown period has been the Air Force Museum of New Zealand um, has been putting uh, uh, photographs up onto their new archive, which has been going for a couple of months. It started just before the lockdown, and virtually every day, uh, Matthew O'Sullivan, the keeper of photographs there, has been putting up dozens of new, um, newly scanned, beautiful photographs, from all sorts of uh eras in the Air Force, right from World War One right up to um, you know, more modern times, uh with the jets and that sort of thing. And lots and lots of World War II stuff. It's brilliant. Every day it's the highlight of my day to just go in there and check what's new. So um I just want to highlight that and uh let everybody know. The the link is on the forum. I I can't remember, I haven't got it in front of me, but you can find it on their website as well. Um Now, uh, Mel Salisbury uh, wants to um, have a word to everyone here, um, while we're just uh, having this chat, um, just about places in New Zealand um, with an aviation interest. So, over to you, Mel. Thank you.
8: I'm off mute, I take it? Yep, you're good. Cool. Yeah, usually we travel overseas, Uh, hopefully most of you guys know uh, what we do, um, take aviation enthusiasts off to the UK or Australia. Obviously we can't do that, our entire year is cancelled, so we're looking at what we can do here in New Zealand. Um, So I'm putting together a list of everything I can find that would be of interest, and I'm going to put two, two tools together, a South Island and a North Island. Also, I think we have a lot of um, people that have traveled with us before that can't do the long haul or don't want to. So, as you say, this whole COVID-19 is making us all do different things. Uh, And I wouldn't have considered doing a New Zealand-based tour before. But I just now looking at it, what a great idea, because there's probably a lot more here than people think or have visited. Some of the diehards will have seen it all, I'm sure. But... Um, we'd love to take people around. So I'm just wanting to ask out any places that you know that we might not necessarily have found on Google or been referred to, just different places. I mean, the Smiths collection is obviously something that everybody knows, but nobody can get to. I'll have a chat and see if that's something we could look at. But anything else around, you can message me afterwards. Um, just aviation tours, NZ find our contact details on there but what do you know that's out there that we might not have found that new zealanders would love to go and see as part of a a tour so we've already found a few things dave you've suggested a few things um some stuff's cropped up that we didn't know about but yeah just now before i start putting it all together i need to know (coughs) what's out there and plot it all on a map and see if we can get and have a look so just ideas whether that's now it might take a bit too much time but if people are happy just to message us afterwards with ideas, that would be great.
0: Is it uh, general aviation or uh, as as well as...
8: Mostly our interest is mostly with the historic stuff, I have to say. But um, whatever is en route might be something we can drop into and have a look at as well. So really anything, I'd like to compile a sort of a, a comprehensive list of... All of the aviation interests in New Zealand,
5: basically. Yeah. Cool. Has anyone got any suggestions,
0: James? You've got your, you. need to unmute.
9: Hi there. Um, yeah, great, uh, great idea. Um, just a couple of thoughts to to follow up. Um, even the the most familiar places, like I don't know, the Air Force Museum, um, would be great if you were promoting it on the basis of having a presentation by the photo archivist or one of the key staff there i think speaking for myself and i think a lot of people here would probably agree what can often make the difference is going somewhere that you might already know well but you get to talk to or listen to someone who really knows the stuff as as we are right now yeah Um, and i think that's that's terrific the other thing i would just quickly say is um uh do promote it overseas um obviously at the moment international travels are are, are a no-no but um, when things open up and, and i'm sure Um, we all want to support the New Zealand tourism industry. It's a very important part of New Zealand's economy. And and, um, if, you know, Aussies can get in, if the Americans can get in when we get to that point, um, I'm sure we would be keen to support that. And of course, um, it's kind of turning your thing on its head in a way, but it's a great thing too, in that um, you'd be able to show the home team sort of stuff to overseas uh, people some of whom you'll know. So yeah, that's right. pretty pretty obvious stuff, but um, sounds great and, and good luck.
8: Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely in mind actually putting something together that we can do now this year, but that we've got the bones of it there for inviting the world um, when we're allowed. So, yeah, definitely.
5: Good. Yeah, well, it, it does sound like a good idea. Um, sorry, I'm having trouble with my mic falling off here. <laughs> Just going to button it. Um
0: no, that's I think it's a great idea. Um I've actually thought for a long time it would be good to have a, a sort of tour that, you know, Aussies or you know, anyone else can come and do a, a national tour of our museums all in one one hit. So yeah, good good on you. I think it'd be good. But would it be yeah. likely like a, a bus, a bus group type tour? I or?
8: think so, yeah. I mean if we can factor any other um experiences in, we will. But already, I mean I have pretty much planned the two islands already and it's already longer than I thought it would be because I found so much to do. And you have to have time in the cities for people to explore as well. Mm. So you kind of need an extra day at leisure, thinking of the internationals. So it's already got longer than I thought and definitely needs to be done in two halves. But there's yeah there's there's a lot here. Yeah. And and definitely valuable advice trying to, and we do try and make everywhere we go a little bit special um, and add value and add more than you know joe public could get but that that was a good reminder there to make sure that we try and bring in something a bit more interesting in each place. so cool thanks
0: cool well um feel free to put a a, a thread up on the wings of new zealand forum as well or you might get some yeah, interesting we'll do. ideas and yeah,
5: yeah
0: excellent. Uh, the only other thing I want to say is um, lockdown for me has been just doing a lot of research and contacting a lot of people. And one of the things I've been doing a lot lately is trying to track down uh, wartime logbooks of um, pilots and particularly pilots, but also air crew. And um, because the, the logbooks that I've collected copies of, I don't actually have any real logbooks. I just get uh, either scans or digital photographs, they're just invaluable for um, finding information uh, either about aircraft or about operations or uh, about squadron um, history that's not in the operation record book. uh, And particularly the likes of the um, operational training units which they've not kept any records of. There's nothing in the archives to record what happened at the operational training unit so we had four operational training units two of them for fighters one for bombers and one for um uh the um, flying boats and all those records are gone so it's really only what's in the log that for historians like myself that um you can piece it together and so if anyone out there has any uh log books from RNZF pilots or aircrew from particularly World War II, but you know any of them are interesting, um, or you know of somebody who might be able to copy them, just um, please get in touch. Uh, right, is there any other interesting news or items that anyone wants to raise before we get to uh, the next
5: speaker? No, okay.
0: Well, I'd like to hand it over to James Kitely now, who's our second speaker of the day. Um, and James is going to give us a talk about a crash site of a, a Brewster Buffalo. James.
9: Thanks, folks. Um, well, very pleased to be here. I'm uh, dialing in from Victoria, Australia, and um, uh, very pleased to be able to uh, support another um, forum. Um, I've managed to get to one in New Zealand so far, and they're always great things. And, uh, yeah, and uh, great to see so many familiar faces, and um, those faces that are not familiar, quite a lot of the names are too. So, uh Really good to sort of connect this way. So well done, Dave, um, <laughs> and to everybody to making it happen. It's, um, it's really good to be here. Um, very briefly, uh, last year I was involved with a, an archeological survey. Everyone wants to call them an archeological excavation, but we weren't, um, we weren't excavating. Um, and it's a long story, but I'll keep it very brief. And um, I have some visual aids, which I will uh, now bring into play with my, for those that missed earlier, there's a, a bulldog clip at the top. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, can can people see that okay, am I getting a... It's basically, the story of this excavation um, was a bulldog wreck, uh, sorry, bulldog, um, a Brewster Buffalo wreck, um, up in the high country of Victoria. Um, and what makes it interesting, uh, I think, is that um, it's at a point in the war when things were very transient. And as Dave's just touched on with the training, it's an area that people don't really know very much about because the paperwork just isn't there. So um, what we have here is um, the period of uh, the Pacific war. Um, you can, um, things were very, very changing very fast. We didn't know what was coming then. So for instance, um, I'm sure most people here will be aware of uh, the concept of ABDA, the, um, where Uh, Australian, British, Dutch, um, and American forces were uh, supposedly combined. Now that didn't last for very long, but at the time they thought that was important. So um, we're looking at buffaloes um, being a a particular type that was supposed to be very popular, very important then. Um, The buffalo, we all know, is really is a failure outside the use of the the fins, but um, we were desperate. We took anything we could get our hands on at that point. And the buffaloes, like several other types in Australia, um, at this point were, we took them, we wanted them, and um, they were secondhand. You can see a great advert here that um, we found online um, for the, uh, the, the Dutch buffaloes and how they were gonna, you know, win against these Japanese, the, presumably the Japanese wearing the bottle glasses, we all know so much about, that it uh, didn't quite work out as planned. Um, so um, one of the key things was, um, what were we gonna be doing, um, and where was it? So the wreck's not a secret, it's well known, up on Mount Stanley. Australia is not very high, relatively speaking, but we have banged a lot of aeroplanes into mountains over the years, and and tragically, including this one, which was a a fatal accident. Um, And the pilot was en route from one base to another, traveling um, between Victoria and New South Wales. Um, Apparently, it seems like he got lost, circled around and hit the side of a mountain and was killed, tragically. We know about him, Um, 2nd Lieutenant um, Henry Null, uh, Jr. Um, We have a few bits and pieces of information about him. Um, He had a very short flying career, as you'd expect, flying basically in the Pacific, Um, and obviously was killed instantly in the crash. Why would you go and do an archaeological excavation? Well we had some questions which I think are quite interesting and that's how I got involved is you'd think the paperwork would be there but it's not. We don't actually know which aircraft this exactly is. We know it's one of a batch and in a way it's not critical but as everybody who's collects serial numbers knows these things are important to get right um, and um, the other question which again, again sort of a modeler question really is um, what colour was it? Was, was it, had it been repainted? Um, and so on. there were some other subsidiary questions like apparently, um, as always with air crashes, uh, the engine was supposed to be misfiring before it crashed. Well, yeah, they always say that. And, and so the question was, could we, could we discover if the engine was faulty? Well, that, that was obviously going to be a massively long shot. Um, the aircraft site had been, ro- had been robbed out or, or the, most of the wreckage had gone. So the chances of finding some facts weren't there, but the question was there. Um, this is what we uh, ended up looking at. Um, I should say beforehand, uh, the, it was a, mount, a proper mountainside. It was absolutely really hard to get around on, big rocks, um, gullies. Uh, it was quite quite a big slope, as you'll see in a, a moment for another photograph, and uh, quite challenging um, uh, ground. I mean, if we hadn't known exactly where it was and we were using GPS, it would probably have taken us a good three quarters of a day to find it, even knowing. Um, a reasonably accurate location for it. Um, And what we, this is basically the bottom piece here is is probably the largest piece that remains. It's a classic archeological experience and there's not very much there. Most of the aircraft was taken many years ago by a couple of aircraft uh, restorers and a lot of it is now in Holland. Um, But the bits and pieces we were able to find did tell us a bit of a story. Um, This piece here, I was very pleased to see, because it's got a couple of Zeus fasteners and, and um, other fasteners on it. And it's um, it's about a bit bigger than a double, uh, well, a, a monitor screen of a computer, if you like, so a reasonable size. It's actually the ammunition bay cover, so it incontrovertibly identifies the aircraft. Um, that's just dirt on it. There's no um, actual colors or markings left, so we weren't able um, to get anything from that, but there were Um, a couple of other pieces where we were able to um, identify um, some bits of paint within the um, folded up damaged part of the metal. So we were able to actually say that there were these colors found. Now, of course, 70 year old colors um, are not, 70 plus, are not stable. So the colors we see today, even in a a sheltered area, that's probably a piece that was in the ground, aren't, uh, necessarily, what you expect to see originally, but you can use a certain amount of, of deduction from how well it was applied. There were some bad paint runs, for instance, so we 're pretty sure it was a repainted aircraft from the original um, Dutch colors. Um, the outputs the results of the survey the aircraft is properly listed now or the, the remnants it 's not really an aircraft as such they 're uh, listed with Heritage Victoria and under protection from um, from being robbed out now in theory. Um, there 's bits and pieces of it as I've said um, in Holland and in a local museum that have, that have ended up there many years ago and the local museum's done a terrific job in putting the family of the pilot together with relative um, relatives and background to it. Um, one of the saddest bits of the whole story is um, the pilot um, had a son born after he uh, was killed um, by a woman in Australia um, and I think they were married but it was a formal relationship at least, but, you know, you kind of, you do this stuff and then you start researching the background. I know Dave does a lot of this um, and there's always the really human story that sometimes comes up and sort of smacks you in the face, like, like that bit of the story. I I think we never really forgot um, that this was a, this was a fatal crash site that we were investigating. Having said that, we had a good time doing it. Um, The rest of the team were archaeologists. Um, Daniel A., who's a good friend of ours and regular participant online, Um, he was the kind of coordinator and he knows his aircraft very well but the others were straight archaeologists they're much happier with pots and holes and they were with aircraft parts and I was getting called all over the place to try and describe this piece or that piece as as we were looking at it and to take photos. It was a very interesting exercise and I think it was a good example and I think we've mostly seen that now where you're getting to see different uh, expertise, different um, organisations coming to bring their knowledge and expertise to bear on a topic and you get something more out of it. Sometimes it makes you question your basic assumptions. My, I would have probably said, well, you know, what's there is a few bits and pieces that were forgotten, left behind by some people trying to clear it out. We don't even know, um, although we think we know that uh, some of the wreckage was probably recovered at the time um, in 42. In, uh, um, and so, you know, it, it's kind of like investigating an absence. You, you're really looking for what evidence there is left, very much like the time team programs or whatever, not something within just about living memory now. Um, so uh, where do we go from here? Well, the, the main thing was the excavation was, uh, um, sorry, the, the survey was um, marked up in the heritage register. Um, a number of publications were made, including one by me in Flight Path Magazine here in Australia. And um, I will with Dave share, a PDF version of that around. So people who are interested in the full nitty gritty of the detail will be able to read that. Um, thanks to the Flight Path magazine, which no longer printing, unfortunately, but um, we can now share that uh, particular article. Um, and some academic outputs as well, but it also made us able to quantify how much you can investigate from a wreck that's not really there anymore. It was actually more than we expected with things like colors. We've got a whole load of um, serial numbers off parts, They haven't been fully tracked back now, but they will um, hopefully when we can match them to Brewster's um, records, and I'll come back to that, um, that will give us an idea to be able to nail down the particular aircraft. And so a a top tip in the whole thing is is don't go after Brewster aircraft. They're they're one of the worst documented US aircraft companies compared to say North American or well, you you name them, even Martin are probably better. Um, And that's partly because Brewster were, an absolute disaster in World War II. Um, I think most people here are familiar with their aircraft, which were a bit of a non-starter, the the Bermuda and the Buffalo and so on. But worse than that is there was some pretty major corruption, um, dodgy stuff about government money going astray. Um, it, there's some great articles online got a big, bit of a dig around about the Brewster Aeronautical Corporation so um, the records that exist which are not very many, a lot of them are gone um, are probably a bit dodgy as well so <laughs> I can recommend avoiding Brewster as a, as a group to deal with um, final um, slide is just uh, us here, this is the team on the on the mountainside and I just thought it, it, it's a good illustration um, really of, of how steep it was, um, they're just sitting on the hillside, there's me in the foreground there um, and we were working, you know, pretty hard to, uh, to move around there. Um, small team, but it was really interesting how we managed to get a, a group of experts to, to come and come up with some different bits and pieces there. Um, I can go on about it. Dave says, I have to keep it short. So I'm keeping it short and he's quite right. That's a good idea. Um, but very happy to answer any quick questions, but bigger questions I think will be answered within the PDF. And as always I'm contactable, very happy to try and have a chat down the track. So, um, Thanks very much for having me and um, great to see so many familiar faces and, well, thanks very much, Dave.
5: Questions? You're, mute, you're still muted, Dave. Hello? Can you hear me? Yes.
2: Okay, great. I do have one question. You. Uh, alluded to um, finding an individual aircraft serial number from part numbers. Is that possible? You can actually look at part numbers and actually find an individual aircraft serial number from part numbers. I would assume that part numbers would be the same from aircraft to aircraft, so it wouldn't identify a specific aircraft. But is that, am I wrong about that? Can you find an aircraft serial number from part numbers? Thank you.
9: Very good question. A very good point there, Carl. Um, Yes and no, Um, bigger no than yes. Um, So serial numbers on parts tend to be batch numbers or similar sorts of things. I'm not an expert on that level of detail, Um, but we have enough that um, they are individual part numbers for that particular part. Um, Now, if it was a more well-documented company like North American Aviation, say um, it may well be possible by cross-checking the batch numbers and so on that you would be able to narrow it down. Um, obviously in this case, we're looking at a small batch of aircraft from a very early period of the Pacific war. So they're gonna be within a narrow um, group of the whole Buffalo production run, if you like. And I, I have to say we haven't, we, I haven't done the work, Daniel's the chap been doing that work, haven't managed to track back those numbers in detail yet because the records are just so fragmentary. Um, it's a classic example, and I think we've all been there where you're looking at a huge amount of work that may come up with nothing. So where do you prioritize that? It's been down the list. We know it's in a batch of, I think, about a dozen aircraft. Um, and really the point was an experiment to see if it was possible rather than actually being certain about this airframe. Um, I think we'd all like to have it nailed down, but how much effort are we gonna put in at this stage? Um, the other thing is that other parts that exist in other collections, like in Holland, I think they with the, the Dutch military aviation collection now um because obviously the dutch have a strong connection um that may well sort of help cross check the thing so again it's an example if if we really wanted to know um then putting in the work would probably come up with results the thing i'd just say to finish that point though is it's a classic example whereas if this was a spitfire or a mustang everything would have been nailed down years ago because they're the ones everybody wants to know about because it's a Buffalo, it was on a tra- It was on a repositioning flight, South Australia. You know, a long way from the actual war zone. Um, it's a classic example of the stuff that I find interesting. I know a lot of other people here do, um, but it's never going to have the traction or interest that uh, another um, more famous type might have. We also know who the pilot was, that he died. Um, so there's no mystery there. Um, you know. If, if, if they ever find Amelia, that will kill an entire industry. You know, the whole point is Amelia is missing. It's not that we don't know. We know she's dead. There's no question about that. But the point is, mysteries are an industry. Um, Knowing stuff is, is not. So, uh, so I rambled a bit there, but I hope that answered. Great to talk to you, Carl.
5: Thank you very much. Thank you. You did.
0: Yeah, thank you, James. That was great. Uh, Kevin, you've got a question?
3: Hi, James. Can you hear me?
9: I can. Lovely to hear from you, Kevin.
3: Haven't seen you since Tyab.
9: <laughs> yes, quite a while.
3: Um, where was it going from and to? Uh, I see Mount Stanley's uh, somewhere near Beechworth, and um, so I'm assuming from Sale to somewhere north.
9: Um, I will consult my article. <laughs> um, where are we? Um, The the reason I'm being a bit vague apart from not having done my homework properly um, is that uh, we weren't entirely sure initially whether where it was going from to or at least I wasn't Um, but uh, according to the slide um, it was going from Laverton um, up into New South Wales to one of the main bases there. Um, I think I'm pretty sure I can't quickly find it and don't waste everyone's time here but I'm pretty sure it's covered in the article um what is interesting is that he was slightly off track by so flying from you know new, victoria um to new south wales a fair distance um not a huge flight but a fairish distance and he was about uh, 20 kilometers so you know 10 miles ish off track nothing major unfortunately that's where the mountains were um so it's a classic example minor deviation from path probable uh, b- bad weather fair amount of cloud Probably trying to position himself um, to to re you know orientate himself in a in a uh, a 180 degree turn and there was a big rock in the way and it's a classic thing he he hit the mountain we looked out from where sort of in reverse direction of where he would have come in and there was another mountain that he'd obviously missed or he'd just come in through a big wide valley um, and it you know you do those they've only. <laughs> <laughs> he'd been a bit higher or gone slightly different. So, um, But the article I will share with uh, Dave and that's got all the SP there, Kevin.
3: Okay, thanks very much. You're bad weather's probably the answer to that.
9: Yeah, I definitely was part of it, yeah. Uh,
0: we've got a question from Zach Yates.
2: Thank you, Dave. Um, thank you, James. That was fascinating, but I'm not actually asking for myself. Um, poor Matt Austin in <laughs> in our chat. He's got an issue with the mic at the moment. There we are. Um, He's hoping he hasn't missed it in the the chat, but James, was the engine located?
9: Uh, Hello, Matt. (laughs) So Matt's north of me in New South Wales, Axe, in New Zealand, and here we go. The wonders of technology. Thanks for the satellites. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, great question. No, the the engine wasn't there. Um, There were some parts, bits of engine. Um, What we don't know, is we're not sure whether the engine was recovered at the time of the accident and maybe investigated and the records lost. There was no record found showing um, that the accident investigation showed um, problems with the engine or not. I think, as I've said in my introduction, and I think we all know, every time an aircraft crashes in any circumstances, witnesses say the engine was running roughly or doing something, or it's it's an absolute given that accident, accident investigators basically ignore that. There were a few witnesses who heard the aircraft. It was in a remote area. There's no houses anywhere near, Um, but the town is uh, probably seven or eight kilometers away, so easily you can hear um, aircraft flying over. Um, So the the engine wasn't recovered, and we don't think um, there's no evidence of the engine having been recovered by one of the um, Warbird restoration crews um but those guys pretty much cleared out what had been left there so it's kind of one of the hanging questions i think that we didn't answer was how much disappeared in world war ii retrieved by the australian air force and how much was retrieved in the i think it was 1980s 70s or 80s when when the stuff was gone um and unfortunately still stuff does still disappear one thing we were able to confirm though is that um uh there was a Uh, either an engine fire fire or a post-crash fire. There was some melted aluminium pieces, um, little globules We've got some photographs, um, which show that the temperatures obviously in the area were high enough to melt aluminium. Um, Steel parts were damaged um, but not destroyed. Um, So you can probably do some plotting on the temperature range that the the crash, probably a post-crash fire, you know, pretty inevitably um, went through doesn't prove the engine had, a, had a, um, uh, a problem before he crash landed. And you know, my take, as, just as Kevin's just said, I absolutely agree, is that uh, dodgy weather, high ground, um, those are gonna be the, the final contributory factors. If you had an engine problem beforehand, it doesn't really change the end result, of course, and, and um, uh, doesn't put him where he was. He would have been heading in probably other directions if he'd been trying to recover from an a engine problem. But that's complete speculation, of course.
0: Are there any other questions out there? Uh, cool. Well, thank you very much, James. That was really interesting. I didn't even have any clue until this that there were buffaloes in Australia. So.
9: That's, um, just if I can come in there, <laughs> me neither, Dave, it's learning experience this game, mm. isn't it? Um, we actually had Buffaloes in WA with some um, boomerangs and um, they nearly intercepted some Japanese attacks. It's one of those little trivia points that I just love. I know some of the guys here do as well. You kind of go, oh, I never knew anything about it because nothing actually happened. Um, there was a, an Australian, um, Chinese Australian pilot. Uh, Roy Goon is his name if I remember rightly and he actually pressed an attack on a Japanese aircraft in a boomerang and his guns didn't fire because they weren't set right or they'd frozen or whatever and so the one chance for a boomerang kill <laughs> was missed because you yeah. know. so it's it's a trivia point it didn't happen but for us on the on the inside with these sort of passions it's that's great to hear but yeah we had a few um buffaloes here um and uh, they didn't do much uh, they ended up in training
0: Cool. Okay. Um, I notice is that Grant McKeir in there? Yeah, I thought so. Hi, Grant. Um, my former co-host on the Wings of New Zealand live show. This is uh, this is the closest thing to doing the live show that we used to do on Warbird Radio, and uh, um, unfortunately, this week we learned that Warbird Radio is no more. The uh, the whole network is now deceased. So. We're um, a bit sad about that. The archive and everything is gone. So unfortunately, uh no more Warbird Radio, so rest in peace. Um if there's any if there's nothing else uh, that anyone wants to ask James or or um bring up, uh we'll go on to the third speaker. Okay, and our third speaker is Charles Davis, who um is going to talk to us. Today, about uh, his Stripe Master. Where is Charles? Is he there? Oh, there he is. <laughs>
2: There's too many people. Hi, Charles. Hi, Dave. Hi, everyone. Um, is my audio working okay? Yep, absolutely fine. And, and can you see this uh, screen that's popped up? Yep. Yep, that's it. And look, th- th- thanks for inviting me, uh, Dave. And um, look, I, I'm, I'm I've been very privileged to look after one of the ex-RNZEF Strike Masters 7.2, um, and I just wanted to briefly cover how the Strike Master came about in the first place, and a little bit about its RNZEF history before uh, talking briefly about learning to fly the thing. Um, it, the Strike Master was in service in the RNZEF for 20 years. Um, I'll just work out how to advance these uh, slides here.
5: Um, Apologies, there will always be some. Did work the other day when we did it. It did, didn't it? That's typical. (laughs) How's that? Has that gone on to the next slide for you? Uh, No. no. You've unshared. Try this again. That's it.
2: Yeah, I might have to do it on a slightly different screen because it's not fast forwarding as we, we go through. But essentially, um, the Strike Master is, has come from the Percival Provost. That, that's the basic frame of the Strike Master. And what, what I'm actually going to do is just uh, click back out of uh, sharing for a moment here and just, just put this.
9: Charles, I think it might be that you need to bring the shared screen forward. I'm not sure how, but when I gave it a bit of a play this morning, the problem I had was it got pushed to the back, and so when you clicked, it wasn't clicking on that. But um, I'll hand over to our technical mm-hmm. wizard, Philip, there.
4: Okay. Um, when, when you go to share, how many screens are you seeing?
2: I'm just, just seeing the, just the full screen here, but what it might do, it's just... I'm not sure what's going on then.
5: Okay, I'll just, I'll just. Apologies for a moment. I knew, knew something like this. Has that, that
2: popped up there? I might just just leave it like that, and put that on the larger screen. Does that does that um does that show up like that? Yep. That's there. I might just have to scroll down on the the side. So apologies, this is not quite how I wanted to share it with you, but. Look, the the F, the RAF was looking for a replacement for the Percival Prentice and um, and put out a tender for a new aircraft. And there is a New Zealand connection here in that the the Provost was designed by um, Henry Milliser who went on to design the Victor Air Tourer. Um, now, per- Percival was incorporated into Hunting Aircraft and then became Hunting Percival, and then into British Aircraft uh, Corporation and. Uh, In the 60s, quite a number of British aircraft manufacturers became uh, absorbed into BAC, and that's a a whole talk in itself. Um, But Henry Melissa here went on to, who designed the provost, uh, uh, designed the Bicte Air Tourer uh, as well. So the the jet provost came about when Percival said, look, there's going to be an upcoming need uh, at some stage for a jet trainer. And rather than waiting for the government to ask for... um, Uh, to ask for a jet trainer, they went ahead themselves and and developed this really uh, by putting a jet engine straight into the jet provost, or into the hunting provost. So that that was the T1, and if you look at that, it's really the same aircraft with long spindly undercarriage and the same canopy system, and a lot of the components were reused, and very quickly uh, they changed that to the T2 Uh, with a much shorter, stubbier undercarriage, now that you didn't have to worry about the prop clearance. And one of these T2s was uh, evaluated by the RAAF, and that's now in the Point Cook Museum uh, in Victoria. The, The first type of aircraft that was manufactured on a large scale was the T3, and the RAF ordered about 200 of these. And the main changes from the T1 and T2 were that It had a clear view canopy rather than that structured canopy and ejection seats and uh, tip tanks. And the engine at that stage had been upgraded to about 750 pounds of thrust, so about half of what the Strike Master eventually was. And then after some time, the T4 came about, and the the big change between the T3 and the T4 was a much more powerful uh, Viper, Rolls-Royce Viper 240 2,450 pounds of thrust. And again, about another 200 of those were organized for the RAF. And and from the T4 to the T5, the big change was a pressurized cockpit, so they had to change this whole system here. Uh, The sliding canopy became more angular. Uh, The wings were made stronger, and there's a much longer, pointier nose. If you look at that nose of the T4 and then the T5, that's now looking much more like a strike master. With, with the sliding canopy, and, and about 100 of these were used uh, for the RAF, and there were uh, a number of export versions as well. And because this uh, design was so popular, uh, British Aircraft Corporation uh, modified it to be used for light attack uh, for an, an export version, put on four hardpoints, a much more powerful uh, Rolls-Royce Viper 535 engine, and a strengthened airframe to be able to carry the extra ordnance uh, that was planned. So the first customer for that in 1967 was the Royal Saudi uh, Air Force, and that's uh, one of their aircraft flying over Blackpool uh, in the UK, close to where these were manufactured, and that's the uh, assembly line at Wharton, and that's the first New Zealand strike master, NZ6361, being built uh, at Wharton. Uh, and this is where Wharton is situated uh, in the u k and it 's quite close to Blackpool Airport. so when you look at some of the early promotional photographs you 'll see Blackpool uh, in the background there's a lot of testing done around the the u k canopy jettison system there i don 't think they tested that that often <laughs> um, and, and these were the aircraft, uh, these were the countries that uh, the Strike Master was uh, exported to, and I'm not sure why there wasn't a Mark 85 and 86, but that's, that's how it worked. So, um, and I'll just, just run through here, the, um, the Saudis first ordered 20 of the Mark 80, and then another 25 of the Mark 80A, and A number of those aircraft, after they uh, were retired, ended up back in the UK. Some of them flew with Team Viper. And this aircraft down the bottom here is now in Christchurch with Brian Hall. So he's got a a Mark ATA Strike Master. And those are the only two in the country now. Uh, That's a South Yemeni uh, Strike Master with its British B registration with Blackpool Airport in the background. Oman flew strike masters and uh, used them quite actively. Uh, when used during combat, they took out the right seat. Uh, and these were um, there's a really interesting book, Stormfront, for anybody who's uh, interested in how they were used. RAF pilots were flying uh, for the Sultanate of Oman, protecting them from a, the Dofor rebellion, uh, and. Uh, some fascinating stories of, of what went on uh, during that time with uh, about nine SAS soldiers defending uh, against about 300 uh, soldiers uh, or sort of terrorists coming in from the, from the desert and about six strike masters. That's one that's been hit by ground fire, leaking fuel, ran out of fuel, and now it's on a dead, sick landing coming into cellar, a big hole out of the bottom where the fuel had emptied out. It's a a Kuwaiti strike master. Singapore strike master, and that could almost be New Zealand, with the Iroquois and the A4 uh, in the background there. Uh, Iggy Wood's book uh, is is fascinating to read, and of course he had flown in Singapore for a while, and uh, flown strike master, and it's got a lot of interesting tales uh, in that. Uh, Ecuador used the strike master for counterinsurgency operations for a while. Uh, the Sudanese had ordered 10 strike masters and because of an arms embargo, only three were delivered and the rest went to Botswana. Uh, and that's the first New Zealand strike master being test flown over Blackpool in 1972. And you'll note that the, the camouflage back then was a bit different. But for the modelers, it's, a, it's a much darker uh, browns and greens in those photos. Uh, with the French uh, Maitre rockets rather than what was actually used in New Zealand. So, New Zealand ordered 10 aircraft in 1970 and they arrived in the country in 1972. And apologies, I'm, I'm skipping through this quite quickly because of the amount of material I've previously accumulated, but that's other photographs taken on that same flight. So, quite a different camouflage scheme to what we saw uh, later on. Uh, when they were repainted in New Zealand. That, that's the temporary B registration uh, there. Uh, there's some fascinating visit videos on YouTube when uh, they were having their official handover at the base in Wharton. So the initial ten were ordered and the idea was that they would be jet conversion for uh, pilots going on to the Skyhawks. And then with the introduction of the air tourer, uh, there was a second order for a further six aircraft. So everybody went through the wings course, uh, all completed their training on a strike master. Now from, from that first batch of 10 aircraft, uh, two were displayed at Farnborough. So here's 65 on uh, static display on the ground uh, and 64 being demonstrated doing a flying display, again, with these French uh, Maitre rockets, which were never used in New Zealand. And from the second batch, 7.5 was also on a static display at Farnborough before coming across. And BAC Corporation made quite a deal at the time that of the customers who had ordered the Strike Master 3 went on to reorder them. Uh, Around the same time, the Australians had ordered the Mackie 326, and that was one of the other possibilities that New Zealand uh, had looked at at the time. So this is 6.1. It had been shipped to Wellington, then trucked up to a and they came in batches of three uh, initially, being taken out of its crate. I'm, I'm not sure if the engines were actually installed on the piers at the time. They, they were probably separate, and I'm, I'm not sure about that. So gradually being put together, uh, and then it was test flown October 72, and then the jet conversion course started uh, a couple of months later, and here it was at its first air show at Karakoram, Uh, soon afterwards. Now one of the advantages of having a horizontal uh, jet pipe system was that you could operate off the grass, so here it is at Hobsonville uh, a few months after arriving. and You can do that without burning the grass Uh, and here's the aircraft that I'm now lucky enough to look after in its initial delivery scheme uh, with this wavy demarcation line and over time that changed uh, and the way the demarcation line was taken off the tip tanks. Uh, so here, here's 7-2 in a couple of photographs. And then later the greens matched what the, the same greens that were painted on the A4s. Uh, so here it is in a much lighter uh, scheme. And again, this was during a period of time before the air trainers were introduced when Harvards were still being used and, and Devon's uh, at Wigram. So once that changed, uh, the wings course the, uh, pilots would do 80 hours on the near trainer at uh, Wigram, then come up to a to do 50 hours on a Strike Master. Um, here's here's an interesting photograph, and and this comes from that uh, recent uh, uh, the, the museum collection going online 1976 at a with the 14 Squadron, 75 Squadron flight line, a couple of visiting 707s, Bristol Freighters. Herk, DC-3s, Harvard, Iroquois, those, those were the days uh, for sure back then. So the Strike Master was part of 14 Squadron, which was disbanded in 1992, uh, and of course recently re- reformed when the Texans were introduced. And they were actively, uh, it was a, an active uh, um, we recruited, recruiting tool, so there's a number of um, interesting photos of Strike Master's, here early on with the old hippo uh, refueling system and a later photo. And I'm, I'm not sure anybody in real life would ever see a scene like that, but that's a recruiting uh, scene there. Um, in the compressor wash, and of course flying low level around New Zealand with all the salt. Uh, that was uh, something that would have to be done. So for the students converting on to Strike Masters, this was the the syllabus that was done and so before anybody would go solo you would learn all about uh, compressor stalls and engine fires and engine failures after takeoffs and flame outs and bird strikes and so forth and, and run through this uh, syllabus during your WINGS course training. Uh, there was side-by-side seating uh, and so the on the student side you've got the trim wheel and this is replicated on the um, on the uh, instructor's side, the flaps, your throttle quadrant, undercarriage with the emergency override switches. Uh, and then in front of you, you've got all your engine instruments with RPM, jet pipe, temperature, oil pressure, fuel selectors, all the armament switches were in the front here, flight instruments. Uh, and here's that Rolls-Royce Viper uh, engine in the back eight-stage axial compression. That's, that's why it's so noisy, too. There's, there's no bypass uh, in it. And it's got a slight kink in the tail, uh, tail pipe as it comes out. Uh, the fuel system, there's, uh, in the wings, you can hold nearly 2,000 pounds of fuel and about another 700 pounds uh, in the in the tip tanks. And if you're going flat out at low level, you'll go through all of that in about 90 minutes flat. Um, the Tip tanks are pressurized to about 6 psi and the wings to 2 psi. And there's, there's a couple of ram intakes at the front beside the intake uh, with a low pressure and a high pressure system on each side. Uh, and what, once the tip tanks are empty, these um, doll's eye indicators in the front cockpit will switch over from black to white. And just so that you don't over pressurize your wing tips, you can switch off the valve between those uh, tanks. And that's something you'd switch off before before aerobatics as well, so that you don't have uh, fuel sloshing between the tips and the wings. Uh, And this indicates that you will burn more than twice as much at low level uh, than at uh, high level uh, as expected. With the electrical system, there's a generator that comes online once the engine is, is running, and... There's a couple of rotary inverters in the nose and static uh, inverter further down in the fuse that converts DC to AC power as you need it. And I'll flick through all of that. Um, The standard warning panel uh, in front of you has a number of amber warnings. If your cabin pressure is too low, fuel pressure is below 3 psi, the generator goes offline, hydraulic failures, oxygen loss. And then there's a fire warning system that has an audio warning as well. So down the jet pipe, there are four thermal couples uh, uh, that will detect if the temperature is too high and that will send off quite a loud tone in your ears. And that's something I've never experienced, but something that we always test before and after flight to make sure the system's working. The hydraulic system uh, runs the undercarriage flaps, air brakes and wheel brakes, and there's a Non return valve so that if you had a hydraulic failure, you can still get the wheel brakes. You've got sufficient pressure in the accumulator to use your brakes when you land. And that hydraulic system's been modified so that you can blow the canopy off as well if you needed to. So there's a little handle between the seats here where it'll blow the canopy between one to eight inches high, and the airstream will just carry the canopy off uh, if that was required for some reason. Um, During RNZF service, the ejection seats were modified and this miniature detonating cord also inserted into the canopy. So that would explode the canopy uh, just as the seat was exiting. Um, There's an oxygen system in the nose uh, and there's a couple of canisters here that will hold 750 litres and 2,250 litres of of pressurised oxygen and that's enough for two big guys, heavy breathing for about four hours. So we don't have to top that up uh, that often. Uh, And there's a couple, you know, externally, this is the talk in itself, but there's a compressor blow off on the top and a couple of ram intakes for generator cooling and uh, anti-icing. And so for the students, this was your typical circuit pattern. Uh, We Keep full power, now until you get to about 180 knots because that's your turn back speed. If you have an engine failure on takeoff and you threw 180 knots, you've got sufficient speed depending on the wind and your reactions to get back onto the runway uh, uh, at that time, so going backwards there. So Strike Masters became quite a familiar sight uh, around the Manawatu, and here they are through a payhu in the background and around uh, the desert road. Night flying in Auckland, formation flying, in line astern you would line up on the ADF aerial which was just slightly off centre and in echelon you'd end up with the tip tank just underneath the squadron insignia to know that you're holding uh, position. Uh, Low flying and of course when the strike masters came into service there were low level jet routes promulgated uh, at that time uh, around the countryside and that changed of course There is a a G meter right in front of you, hard to ignore, and a fatigue meter at the back. And you can see with 7.2, its it's fatigue meter reads that it's been over 7G twice. During RNZF service, initially, it was limited to 5.5 Gs. And you can see it's been over 5 Gs about 72 times. And then to limit the fatigue life on the aircraft, it was dropped down to 4.5 G. Uh, So that's the the diagram we would use now so fighter pilots will talk about corner speed uh, and if your va or maneuvering speeds about 220 knots below that speed you can pull as hard as you like and you might g stall the aircraft but above that speed you're really looking in front of you to make sure that you're not going through four and a half g so if you're opening an air show and coming in at about 380 knots and then you're pulling up in front as you're turning back towards the crowd, you're really looking at that speed. And if you're still going over 220 knots, you're making sure you're not pulling more than 4.5 G as you're turning back in and your dairy return or whatever you happen to be uh, doing. Uh, if you're entering these vertical three, uh, 360s, you're, you're doing about 310 kn- knots at the bottom to have sufficient energy to get up over the top. So here's some, because I can, <laughs> some pictures of that. And then pilots would graduate, and there's you know there's lots of stories in and of themselves of who some of these individuals were and um and who they um later became. So these are photos of some of the, the students graduating, fresh young faces. Uh, some of these instructors would pose slightly differently. Um, and then after you'd graduated when horse pilots would either go on to rotary, transport, or strike. And for those people going on to strike, uh, you would stay on 14 Squadron, and this was the general syllabus that uh, pilots would then go on to learn. So uh, there were machine guns mounted under both wind routes, and the ammunition was loaded into the bay here and shot out through these areas at the, the bottom. And this is more a hardened steel than an aluminum alloy because of the heat of the shells uh, coming out. So these Hispano machine guns, um, air combat manoeuvring, there's practice multiple uh, bomb racks, and occasionally uh, heavier uh, bombs were placed. Um, These American rockets, American rockets were used uh, just so that it was in keeping with what was used on the Skyhawk. It was over the range at uh, Waiaru there. Uh, and pilots would learn uh, aerial strike. and Occasionally he- heavier weaponry was used. There was an occasional mocked-up photograph I've come across of air-to-air missiles, and there's much heavier uh, uh, bombs here. And I don't think any strike master ever got airborne looking like that, but um, interesting photo. This, the Skyhawks used liquid oxygen, and so the, the strike masters carried these. LOX tanks just to help transport that around the countryside uh, for A4s that weren't been based out of Ohakia. And they were also modified to be able to be used as luggage pods as well. So those are inboard uh, liquid oxygen tanks. And four aircraft were also modified to be able to tow banners. Uh, and some of them were used for asymmetric uh, maneuvers as well. Now, 14th Squadron would have a falcon's rest uh, exercise uh, every year, and that went right from Kaitaia down to Invercargill. So I've picked out a couple of photographs here over the prison at Invercargill, uh, Dunedin from the control tower. That could only be Gisborne, Tauranga. Talking to herald reporters at Tauranga and some of the, uh, some of the publicity that later came out from some of these well-known faces here. Um, some lucky Herald reporter getting to go for a flight in these things. The last two camps were held at Haukatika and at uh, Gisborne, and there was a a combination of both air Mackeys and strike masters at those uh, falcon's roost camps. So that, That last camp at Gisborne, there was an awful lot of rain, and these strike masters had to be towed out of the grass there with tractors. That was getting ready for the last photo op into the, the Merck there at Gisborne, and this was soon before the strike masters were farewelled. Um, And of course, they were involved with all sorts of other exercises uh, during time, and the most well-known was Triad 84, uh, before the Lange government uh, had the nuclear-free policy. And 10 strike masters had been based at Fenua to defend the the base. And one of them got a kill on an F-16 during that uh, exercise too. From the public's point of view, they, they commonly appeared at uh, air shows here showing the ejection sequence. Um, that was a very much younger me uh, many years ago uh, at Ardmore. Uh, and I think just as the Strike Master was about to be retired, uh, this this is a photograph I took from the top of a camper van on the c- crowd line at Wanaka. I think this was one of the most impressive Strike Master displays I ever saw uh, flying by an XRF. Uh, exchange pilot. There were a number of incidents uh, throughout RNZAF uh, service and three aircraft were lost. Uh, and I'll just uh, briefly go through those. The first was when three aircraft were on a NAVEX in the South Island uh, and at the end of that NAVEX uh, the aircraft met up to fly over the parents house of the uh, pilot who was leading the formation and the second pilot uh, hit power lines. Uh, and the same power lines had been hit by a top dressing aircraft about 20 years previously, and as the wires were joined together with the swage, that swage had wrapped around one of the pylons uh, underneath the uh, underneath the wing, and that, um, if that hadn't occurred, it's possible that the strike master might have just flown straight through the pylons, uh, and that pilot ejected uh, really just as the jet was hitting the hillside, um, there was a, one fatality, um, Craig Tanner, uh, who is one of the instructors uh, on falcon's roost exercise at, uh, at Tauranga, uh, was seen to have um, been in a dogfight and uh, just started the ejection sequence. The canopy flew off, but um, sadly didn't get out. Uh, and then there was a post maintenance test flight when there was probably too much fuel in the tip tanks uh, during a spin. And the centrifugal force meant that the spin was unrecoverable. So it was, it was you wouldn't normally spin the aircraft unless the tip tanks were normally almost empty and you'd start your spin above 18,000 feet and recover by 10,000 feet. In this particular, um, Australian exchange pilot ejected below 5,000 feet, um, apparently. Because of the very uh, mountainous nature of New Zealand and, and lots of flying through turbulent conditions, uh, wind fatigue became a real problem. And so over time, these uh, inspection holes were drilled into the surfaces of the strike masters, and uh, they were periodically grounded um, with initially rudder cracks and then later wind cracks. And... Uh, various uh, fatigue monitoring systems were introduced into the aircraft along with these wing inspection holes and six aircraft went on to be re-winged including 7.2 and so currently the fatigue index on 7.2 is about 81% for the fuselage and about 3% for the wings uh, because of the re-winging exercise so here's one of these jigs that was used to fit the new wings but eventually, the aircraft became grounded so often that they were replaced and that was Project Falcon and the Mackie 339 uh, was selected. Alright, um, we're just um, updating here. So this is one of those fair, farewell flights to the Strike Master over at all the aircraft that had ever flown as part of 14 Squadron, um, in the last last photo call there. So. Four of the aircraft that were left, there were 13 aircraft left, Uh, four ended up at Woodburn as instructional airframes, and two ended up at museums. Seven-three at uh, the Wigram Museum, and seven-four originally uh, outside the Air Force Museum at Ohakia, and then it's uh, been packed up and it's now down in the Wanaka Museum. And the remaining seven aircraft were given to Air Mackey as part of the deal and sold on to International Air in Sydney, who then uh, sold them. And they mostly went to adventure aviation operators in uh, Australia and a few in the States. Um, Brett Nichols uh, brought 7-0 back uh, from an operator at Port Macquarie, uh, and he was 7-0 in one of the schemes that people might remember. And then later, uh, 6-2, he also brought 6-2 back uh, that have been looked after uh, in Perth for a while and was part of a deceased estate. And those aircraft have now been sold and they're part of blue air training uh, based out of Las Vegas. And the ejection seats are live again and they've been rearmed and they're used for close air support training. So they're, they're very active uh, still. And they've got about eight strike masters. That's two after it was transferred across to Australia. All the military markings have been spray painted uh, off. And it was owned by the same person who owned uh, Brett Nicholls uh, number 70. Uh, and before, and that, that's when it's been repainted again. It was in Victoria initially before coming across to uh, Port Macquarie, and you can see it's a, a much more insipid sort of a, a green colour after its repaint. Now, there was a breakup of a Strike Master in flight uh, in Australia. Uh, and that's something I looked into in great detail, detail before uh, agreeing to uh, bring a Strike Master back because um, I really wanted to understand is this something that could potentially happen? Uh, and essentially this, this aircraft was flying along at about 350 knots at about 300 feet high and there's a about a 200-page report that's available online that goes into great detail about what happened, but essentially the the mass balance came off the rudder uh, first, uh, forcing the aircraft nose down, and then the right wing came off. Uh, um, and they calculate there was something like 200G of force on the wing uh, t- as it was forced nose down. So there were some pre-existing fatigue cracks in the wings. Um, and essentially, the maintenance system for that particular ex-Singapore aircraft meant that it was probably an accident waiting to happen. Um, The aircraft in New Zealand, the wings get taken off every 150 hours and undergo non-destructive tests so as long as you stick within the fatigue limits that just shouldn't happen. So that's the aircraft there at Port Macquarie when I first saw it in the the hangar uh, as it arrived at Pioneer Aero at Ardmore uh, to be reassembled. In in the hangar there and after it was repainted. Um, A a couple of people taught me to fly the thing and there is a a syllabus for civilian pilots as I am with no military training converting onto an ex-military jet Uh, and uh, Dave Brown who's the CFI of Warbirds uh, has been uh, brilliant for taking me through that along with uh, Dean Beverley uh, here. And I trained to do adventure aviation flights under Part 115, and uh, Frank Parker did my OCA for that. But but the the maintenance program required by CAA has changed, so we can only do Part 91 flights now. Um, So with Dave, I've done a low-level display uh, approval, and this is us um, over one of the airshows at Ardmore, me practicing there. Kate Turn again in the Hawke's Bay, doing the same sort of thing. And 7-2, just to summarise, has been part of a number of air shows since it's been back here in New Zealand, uh, heading back down to Omaka. We had all three with Brett Nichols aircraft up at Ardmore uh, a few years ago. Um, and to finish that's uh, just landing at Ardmore. So, look, that, that's all I've got to say. That's a, a very uh, fast overview of a, a, a something I could talk about for hours. And uh, happy to talk, take any questions. Uh,
5: what,
0: what was it that uh, actually made you want to want to buy one and bring it back to New Zealand?
2: When I was a baby, I was brought up near Ardmore and my parents put me out in a high chair to um, watch the cows in the paddock and there's photos of me in this high chair just looking at all the aircraft flying over. And I think I had the disease that many young boys had watching skyhawks fly around the place and thought, I want to do that. (laughs) There's many in the audience here today that could understand that. I skipped sixth form, uh, and I hadn't appreciated uh, that when I was in seventh form and went to the RNCF recruiting office, everybody else did in seventh form, that sixth form maths, physics, and English was a requirement to get into the Air Force. Uh, so the Air Force said, look, come back next year. Um, I in my, had a student holiday job pumping petrol at the local gas station and, and um, saved enough money to get a private license. And, uh, went to university and trained to do something else and got a little bit of, out of my system, but never really lost the passion for, for flying like that. So, you know, I've been learning to, you know, I learned to fly over 30 years ago now, and it was just fortunate that the opportunity came up, really. Fantastic.
5: Are there any other questions out there? Carl? Yes, uh, thank you
2: so much, um, Charles, for the discussion and overview. It's very similar in some ways to, the, um, to an American design. I hope I'm not insulting anyone by bringing this up, but the, um, the Cessna eight thirty seven T37. Um, do you have any experience with that, or
4: can you make any comparison to something that I would be more familiar with? It's a neat-looking airplane, and yours is very nice. Thank you.
2: Thank, thanks, Cal. Um, I'm not an expert on the A37. There is one based in Tauranga uh, at the moment. Uh, It's got two engines, and the performance is pretty similar, but the fuel burn is about twice as much. Um, And you'll see that in a lot of the photos of them, they've usually got two underwing uh, stores on each side just carrying the fuel. Um, So, no, no, they're they're, they're quite similar in terms of side-by-side seating, pressurised... Um, uh, cockpit, uh, ejector seats um, tip tanks noisy, (laughs) lovely
5: aircraft (laughs) Great, are there any other questions anybody? Uh, Errol Errol Thanks for that
7: Um, could you just um, tell us what the situation is with Spears at the moment. Always an issue with these uh, older jets of course. Uh,
2: it's um, I, I, that was one of the real considerations that Brett Mickles had when he sold his aircraft. Um, you go through a lot of fuel and a lot of uh, oil on every flight uh, and um, the, it's, it's really the mains tyres uh, that's one of the concerns. O- over And we've arranged for a source of those uh, that should last us for a fair amount of time yet. The Rolls-Royce Viper engine was initially rated to 1,800 hours. Uh, And Rolls-Royce put out an advisory that you couldn't fly them for more than 1,000 hours if they were in uh, civil registered aircraft. And when my one came across from Australia, it had already done 1,200 hours. Uh, and so we had to get a new one across from the UK that was zero-timed, uh, and and so that, that should last us for quite some time into the future. If I can do uh, an hour a month for the next 50 years, I'd be very privileged, and the engine should last that, that long. And um, it, it needs to undergo Lacing wire turbine inspections every so often. There's various hydraulic parts that we've needed to replace over time. Uh, you used to be able to get a lot of things like all the rudder bolts and aileron bolts that need to be replaced every so often from international air parts in Sydney, uh, but they've sold all their parts onto Blue Air Training um, in the states. So I'm not. We, we haven't sort of been stuck too much yet. When you import these parts from Australia, it's um, important not to say that they're for a military aircraft. Um, And it's it's better sometimes to fly over there yourself, put them in your cabin luggage and come back. Uh, I think if we ever got a crack on the windscreen, um, that that would be the real, uh, that that would really slow us down because parts like that would be difficult to come across. And if you just block your ears, uh, Michael Williams there for a moment. probably what we'd do is a dawn raid uh, down at Woodburn. <laughs> so that, so there are four there are four airframes down at Woodburn, you know, that potentially we might be able to negotiate with the Air Force if we got really stuck for something. I'm not I was interested to hear from Mike Nichols that there were some strike master parts found in the John Smith collection. I'd be interested to hear what what they may be. Uh, Vince, did you have a question? Thank
0: you.
7: Yeah, yep. um, I'd spent some time in Woodburn um, training on the on the Strike Masters for mechanics and um, I thought there'd been six down there but are they still being used um, as instructional airframes down there?
2: I, I'm, I, my understanding was that very rarely um, they, they weren't really suitable anymore and they had those Kawasaki aircraft that they were primarily using but they, they may be used by some of the trades and I'm not too sure but I had heard through the grapevine, Michael Williams might be able to tell us more uh, that they were looking to dispose of them at some stage. Oh. But I, I, I don't know about that. And
7: was it, was it four or six? I thought there was six, but it um, must be only four then, is it?
2: There, there were four at Woodburn, and, and the two that were in museums may have at one stage been at Woodburn as well before they then went to the Harker and uh, the Wigram.
7: Oh, yeah, it was ten years ago, so yeah, okay. Cool, thank you. You're
0: welcome. Uh, Charles, Charles, you've got it based at uh, Wellington Airport, haven't you? Wrong It's
2: uh It's actually sitting at Ardmore at the moment after the uh, most recent air show. I've left it up there. One of the issues I've had at uh, Wellington is that every time you get a southerly coming through, you get a little bit of salt. Uh, and uh, in one of our recent maintenance checks, we've just noted a little bit of pitting on the front of the engine, so we're spraying some ACF fifty up the front uh, every month or so just to minimise the risk of that. You know, you've taken off some of the panels and you'll see salt crusted underneath. So Wellington's extremely harsh on airframes, so we're actually looking for a base uh, somewhere else that's um, will preserve the life of the aircraft for a bit more. So, um, yeah, watch okay. this space. Hamilton would be good. <laughs>
0: Cambridge. <laughs> yeah. We've got a grass paddock over the road. <laughs> uh James, you got a question?
9: I think phrase more of a comment. A really good question from Carl Winter earlier about the similarity to the A thirty seven or T thirty seven, A thirty seven. Um I've got a friend in the States uh, who has a um uh T thirty uh T thirty seven and of course um the Tomorrow collection very famously has an A37, which is basically a Hoonmobile for a show work. Um, and the key difference, I'm just wondering, Charles, um, from your obviously extensive research, the A37 and the T37 look very similar, but the performance is completely different because the, um, the A model has a much more powerful engine, I don't know the numbers, um, and they're a world away in terms of capability and, and aerobatics, which is obviously the main interest today. Um, is the strike master significantly more punchy than um than it was as the j p
2: uh that, that 's debatable, and if you ask some of the r f pilots around they 'll say look it's it 's a little bit more than a t five you know it 's got a the the thrust of the engine is significantly more but it 's also a heavier airframe it's a strengthened airframe. Uh, My ones had the cannons taken out of it, so that, that weight is gone. Uh, and if you're not carrying all the underwing stores, then it is, it is, it is reasonably punchy. It's probably a fairly slow acceleration compared to some things. Uh, it's probably more than an A37. With the with Strike Master, you're burning about 23 pounds per minute of fuel at low level, and at a high altitude, more like 16 pounds a minute. Uh, if you look at the A37, it's almost double that, you know, it's about 45 pounds a minute. I, I spoke to somebody recently at the Tauranga one. That that's, could potentially be for sale if somebody wanted to put in the bid, but you really want to work out the fuel bills um, beforehand. Speaking but
5: of...
1: I, I don't know a lot about the
5: T37
2: and A37 comparison.
0: But speaking of the fuel burn, have you been stocking up on fuel while it's cheaper?
2: Oh, look, I, I would have if I could have <laughs> <laughs> crossed my mind.
5: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Work. Yeah, um, thanks for your talk there. Tell
6: me, um, are you still able to take passengers up now, either you or Brian Hall, or aren't you covered by that now because of CAA regulations?
2: No, normal Part 91 flying is uh, no, no problem at all. So I've done lots of cost-share flights. And I have to be careful what I say because anybody can do cost-share flights as Part 91. Anybody can go to a local pilot and say, can I go for a flight? And you can share half the actual costs of flying the aircraft. But what you're not allowed to do unless you're under Part 115 is advertise. And so that's why I have to be careful in the more public forum even just talking about it, um, and you're not allowed to make a profit. So taking passengers is, is no problem at all, and I, I'm not sure how many passengers I've taken over time, but, you know, probably 30 or 40, at, at a guess, since I've
5: had the aircraft. How many hours have you done it? Uh, I think about 160 now. Wow. That's good.
2: Yeah. yeah. Just, Just don't... I have to be careful what I, I tell my wife because when you the and multiply it by that many hours, <laughs> you, it, it, you have to shift the decimal point a little bit.
7: Does <laughs> Brian Hoare fly his?
2: Uh, he does, and we, we've done a little bit of flying together. So yeah, right.
7: Cool.
0: At Warwick, I've got a question for you. When you were in the air force, did you actually work on the Strike Masters?
6: No.
5: Okay.
0: No, did I
6: anyone- didn't. Um, I went straight from the Vampire, virtually onto the Skyhawk. I think I did a just a couple of months when I was in the um, engine servicing bay, because you have to have a, everyone had to have a turn of doing that sort of for six months, and um, just did a little bit of work on the Vipers as they came through, but. Otherwise, I was virtually straight on to the J-52, the
0: Skylon. Okay. Did anybody here um, work on them or fly them in the Air Force? Did you fly them, Michael?
5: No? (laughs) I can't hear you,
0: Mike.
5: This, Michael. Yeah,
7: yeah. Uh, Yeah, I am rated in it. I've um, got some experience on the Strike Master, but uh, not as part of the RNZDF service, no.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
7: Yeah. In fact, it's interesting. All of the pattern speeds, handling speeds, aerobatics, everything is the same as the Texan. You can uh, ultimately make a Strike Master go faster, not not a lot faster, but faster. But um, all, everything else is uh, the same speed. In fact, that circuit pattern is exactly the same speed.
5: Wow, that's very really interesting. Cool. Is there any other questions 22. for? What was that? Only two pounds per nautical mile, though. Which is about, you know, eight, eight pounds a minute. Right.
0: Okay. Wow. makes a difference. Sure does. <laughs> so are there any other questions for Charles at all?
2: I think talking to talk some of the ex ZDF engineers, the... The Viper 535 was really reliable, and there were not really any issues with it in service. But um, a few people have said it sounds like Rolls-Royce really were pushing the envelope uh, with the Mackie, with the Rolls-Royce Viper that's introduced into the Mackie, and that really had a lot of problems. Mm. Um, But the the 535 and the Strike Master was, was really pretty robust.
0: well thank you very much charles that was really fascinating actually i I enjoyed that a lot and uh yeah um i guess we're pretty much done unless anybody has anything else they want to say i want to thank everybody for attending today it's been um it's been a great experiment to to have a go at this and um hands up if anybody thinks we should do it again in the future sometime that's most of, sure. it.
5: That's sure. of
9: it. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. just, just like to say a big thanks uh, to Dave uh, and Phil, yeah, yeah. particularly for bringing it together and making it possible to happen. And I've uh, certainly enjoyed myself. And uh, yeah, definitely, let's do it again.
0: Agreed. Well, I want to say particularly thanks to Phil because this wouldn't have happened without Phil. Uh, I had no idea about Zoom at all until I got the link from Max um, a few weeks ago for the the Airplane Geeks thing, I'd, I'd never even seen it being used. So I just followed the link and it worked. And I thought, hey, this is cool. And what a great technology. It's just amazing. It really is. Um, and the fact that we can connect from all around the world, and we've even got a Tasmanian on board. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, no, it's, uh, it's really good. Um, cool. Well, thanks very much, everybody. And uh, I'll probably call it quits here.
5: Thank you, Dave and Phil. Oh, thanks, thanks Thank everyone. Yeah, we're to see
0: you it. all. Thank thanks. you. Thanks, Dave. Bye, everyone. Cheers.
5: Thanks, Dave.
6: Thanks,
0: um, everyone.
5: else. <laughs>
6: see you later.
0: Cheers. All good. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.